So I'm going to start the sermon from back here, but before we begin the sermon, before we hear God's word, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful for your word in Jesus Christ who, who came and who lived among us in order to bring us to you. And Father, we are thankful for the word that you give us in the Bible. We pray that today you help us to hear the Bible clearly, remove any external barriers there might be to us hearing your word, and we pray too that you remove any internal barriers we might have, any resistance or, or rebellion or anything that would get in the way of us truly hearing what you have to say to us this morning. We pray all this in your name, amen. So we're continuing our series on Revelation, the big reveal this morning, and, and I'm going to have kind of a, a long intro to the sixth of the seven letters that we're going to be reading in Revelation 2 and 3, and I want to I tell you a story. It's the story of the church. I think it's one of the most exciting and most troubling stories in the world, but I want to tell you that to, to introduce some themes and maybe to help us understand the power and the relevance of this text. So the story of the church begins, well, in some sense, it begins at the cross. It begins outside of Jerusalem where Jesus dies, and then he rises again to bring salvation to all the peoples and languages and nations of the world. And, and then the disciples are told to go out. Jesus gives, this, gives them this commission, and they go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. In the first few hundred years of the church's existence, the church really grows around the Mediterranean Sea, and there is this thriving Christian culture in North Africa and Southern Europe and, and in a lot of what we'd call the Middle East now, and the churches are amazing, and they, they grow deeper and deeper, and they reflect on the mysteries of the gospel, and, and they are tremendous and amazing. But then a few centuries go by, the Roman Empire makes the church its official religion, the church becomes more and more powerful and corrupt, and then eventually the barbarians strike. And a little later, Islam comes sweeping across, and, and the church in a lot of the Mediterranean world ceases to exist or, or falls out of its position of power to become simply marginalized. But before that, missionaries had gone out to northern Europe. And northern Europe, the barbarians... They had become more and more Christian, and so there's this over thousand-year period where northern Europe is, is Christendom. The churches grow and grow and grow. More and more people come in. The culture is, is transformed from a pagan culture of, of idol worship and all kinds of nasty things to become more and more a place where Jesus is glorified and where, where the cross is focused on. But then over time, the church becomes more and more corrupt. It gets away from the gospel and toward earthly power. And, and then we have, well, you have the Reformation that birthed our particular church and our history as Reformed Christians. We point back to that. But, but along with that comes more and more religious wars. And more and more the church, the institutional church, separates from the gospel. And and secularism comes along and drags the culture away. And, and if you go to a lot of the great churches in Europe these days, you will find that they are more like museums than churches. They are huge, amazing buildings, but there is hardly anybody there on Sunday morning. But along with all that happening, Northern Europe sent out a tremendous number of missionaries around the world. 
And many of them came to North America. And the North American church has been really the powerhouse of Christianity for the last couple centuries. We see that in, in America, often considering itself a Christian nation. We see that in the story of many of our families of, of coming here and finding religious freedom and finding the ability to be Christian in ways that, that were not always possible in other places. And we have, we have that movement of the gospel in many ways to thank for our own church. But these days... These days, pluralism, other religious options, the, the movement of culture, postmodernism, and we can name a lot of isms, but, but the church in North America, well, it's fading. It's fading. And the pandemic has accelerated a lot of those trends. And, and as we look around our culture, as we look at the churches, more and more churches are, are very small and are becoming more like museums than churches. And other churches are growing, but you have to ask, are they, really, are they really in the gospel or are they proclaiming something else? And just as a side note for faith here, I think compared to a lot of churches that I've had connections with, a lot of pastors I've talked to, I think we at Faith really weathered the pandemic tremendously well. A lot of us are back present here physically. We have a number of people live streaming with regularity. We, if you look at the things like budget giving, attendance, some of those things, we really are doing well. But compared to where faith was 20 or 30 years ago, there's been a lot of people who have faded out. And what do we, what do, we do with that in our place, in our time? Now, there is good news with that, too. And I, I want to land here before we get to the text. But North America and, to some extent, Western Europe, the last couple hundred years, has been, has been a worldwide global missions force like has not been seen before. The church is all around the world. There are something like 2 billion Christians. Africa, Asia, South America are church powerhouses these days. There are more Reformed Christians in Africa than there are in North America, and their churches are growing like we could hardly believe. They can't even keep up. The church, from the time of the cross all the way up till today. The church's story has been a, church of, a story of decline and failure, of compromise with the culture, of losing the gospel, of becoming complacent and fading away. And yet at the same time, the church's story has been the story of, of the gospel moving on, of the gospel bringing more and more people in, beginning from, from a small group on Easter Sunday till to being the dominant religion in the world today. The church has this story of complacency and fading out and also this story of renewal and growth. It's a wonderful story. It's a tragic story. In many ways, it's the best story of all. So I bring you through those 2,000 years of church history to help you hear maybe with a little different ears the, the letter to the church of Sardis today. This is the sixth of the seven letters in the book of Revelation. And, and in this book, in this letter, Jesus speaks to his church through the centuries and speaks to us today. So hear now the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, to, he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the first, the first verse of this text, this is the word of the Lord. I got so excited there, I forgot our little ritual. This is truly the word of the Lord. Well, our, our first point, the first verse in this sermon today comes and asks the church, are you asleep? Are you asleep? Now, the city of Sardis had a, had a reputation for being asleep at the wheel. Sardis was built around and especially on this, this huge hill and three sides of the hill were a sheer drop, and then there was this long, hard uphill from the other direction. So Sardis had the reputation of being an invulnerable city. You couldn't come at it from three sides, and the fourth side was really well defended. It was the city that you would pick as, as a capital, as the last place you'd fall back to. But this invulnerable city had twice in the centuries before the book of Revelation came along, had twice been conquered. Once the king of Sardis got kind of uppity and he decided he would go out and he would attack the Persians, one of the dominant world powers of the time. So he went out and he spent the summer battling the Persians and then he thought, winter's coming, we're going to break for the winter like we usually do, no more fighting, we're going to go back to our city. And he thought the Persians would do the same thing, but instead the Persians came after him and wiped out half his army on the way. And so they retreated up to this stronghold, up to this invulnerable city where no one could get at them. And they sat back and thought, we're just going to wait out the winter, and then we're going to come out and smash those Persians. But the Persians had a guy who knew how to climb mountains. So he went around the back of the city, and he climbed up the unclimbable hill, and one night he opened the city gates. And in came the Persians to this invulnerable city and, and wiped it out. And then a few hundred years later, there's another ruler who, who gets in some trouble and they retreat to the city, they close the gates and they sit back and they think we're safe now. But the army that was attacking them had 15 mountain climbers and so these guys sneak around the back and they climb up and over the city walls. And again, this invulnerable, powerful city that no one could ever conquer falls like a rock. And after that, Sardis' reputation tanks, and they move the capital from there to a different city, to Pergamum, whose letter we read a couple weeks ago. And Sardis, Sardis develops this reputation of being, well, being asleep at the wheel. Yeah, the location's great, but you people, you people... And the church at Sardis, as this letter to Revelation tells us, is, is in a similar place. They're trading on this reputation. They have this great reputation for being alive, but the reality is, the reality is they're spiritual wimps. 
The reality is they've fallen asleep. They are spiritually, well, not just asleep, but dead. Dead. Most of these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 have this formula where Jesus comes and he speaks to them and he says, well, I know your deeds and here's some good things about you, but also there's these problems. And here in Sardis, well, here in Sardis, the Lord Jesus, as he speaks to this church, he breaks that formula. And instead of saying, I know your deeds, here's the good things about you, but I also have this complaint against you, Jesus says, I know your deeds, and they are terrible. All you have is an empty reputation. This church is so dead that all it has left is its name. It is so complacent that there is nothing left. Does that describe us? As we reflect on the season we're in as the North American church, scholars, students of church history, they're looking at the North American church and they're starting to ask, has our day passed? Has the church moved on from North America? And now, if we really want to talk about where Christianity is centered, do we need to look to Africa? Do we need to look to Asia? Do we need to look to South America? And if we reflect not just globally, but, but here at faith, have we fallen asleep? Are we in our, our nice Sunday morning fortress, complacent and, and thinking that all is well, when in, fact, when in fact our reputation and our reality are in different places? Where are we? How does this letter speak to our situation today? Now, I'm, I'm tempted to, and, and I think we could have reason to say, well, here's some good things we have going on in North America. Here's some good things we have going on in faith. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I don't want to undercut the power of that question. This letter is addressed to the church in all times and places. And, and so often in the history of the church, complacency has preceded decline and fall. So where are we? And I invite you today and in the days ahead to, to sit with that uncomfortable question and to ask if we need to be shaken up a bit so we follow Jesus more. We forget so easily. It's so easy to fall asleep. And if that's where we are, then we need to hear the next couple of verses. And, and those couple of verses call us to be awake. They say, wake up. Awake, church. And then Jesus gives several commands, and you could, you could break those up in several different ways, but, but they all center around that theme of waking up. Jesus wants his people to be active, to be alert. And if you think of, well, if you think of the city of Sardis, this was not a city without physical defenses, but it also always had soldiers on the wall, soldiers who were supposed to be watching out for any attack. But it seems like every time the city had fallen, those soldiers had, well, they'd gotten kind of relaxed. No one can climb up that mountain. Our walls are fine. I'll just take a little nap. Who's ever going to know? And the answer is, well, everybody's going to know because the enemy is coming and they're going to overthrow your city because you are asleep at the wheel. 
wake up. Wake up, says Jesus. And then he invites the church to strengthen what remains and is about to die. He says, your work is unfulfilled. And there's a, there's a historical dig there that the city of Sardis had this huge temple that they'd never managed to finish. So there was this shell of a big building that had a prominent place in the city. And year after year, decade after decade, it remained a shell. They couldn't finish what they started. And so Jesus comes to the church and he says, you know that building that you laugh at? That temple, that religious spot that everybody knows is kind of a joke these days because they just can't get it pulled together? Well, that's what you look like, church. That's what you look like, you, how would you say that, Sardisians? Wake up. Get to work. Your work is not completed. You know, in a few weeks after Easter, we're going to pull some things apart up here. The organ is due for some maintenance and repair. We're going to build some things up, freshen up the front a bit. But, but how would it be if we, if we stopped partway through? And we just said, oh, that's good enough. We'll just leave it for a few years. We'll get back to it someday. How would you like that? Not so great, right? Well, the church has often let its work, let its work go unfulfilled. And so I think it's worth asking for us, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to fulfill what God has called us to do and to be? And maybe what that would look like is us just holding on. Again and again in these verses, in these chapters of Revelation, we're told just to hold on. Just hold on in the midst of a hostile world. Maybe that's what it would mean as a church for us to to wake up in North America and just to hold on. Or maybe the invitation, and this seems more likely at Sardis, maybe the invitation is for us to, to step out more boldly into the world, to proclaim in our lives and in our words that we are different, that we have a hope that other people do not have, and so we will live differently regardless of the cost. What would it mean for us to be awake? What would it mean? Now, having, having been maybe, maybe hard on the church in North America, maybe hard on us, and I hope we all feel a little unsettled at this point, I want to talk a little bit about how God is at work and how the church is awake here and now. We had a classes meeting this last week. That's where a number of Christian Reformed churches from our area gather, and we do some church business, and And we have some prayer time and some worship time, and we talk about how to plan for ministry. And one of the things that we often do is is work people through on the road to ministry. And this last Wednesday as we gathered, we we examined or we talked about three, three men who are working toward becoming pastors in our area. And one of them, Eric Crawford, he's going to be at Lawndale. and, And one of the things that he does week after week is he's out where the drug deals are happening. He, with some other people from their church, goes to the hot corners, to the places where there are drugs and violence, and, and they try to be a faithful witnessing presence there. And then sometimes on Sunday mornings, he gets up in front of the church there and he preaches. And he is working toward, working toward being God's witness in the world and in the church. And we also talked about a guy called Hieronimo. 
who is more and more preaching at Ebenezer CRC, another one of our sister churches, and he is leading the Spanish-speaking church plant within that church. And he also is becoming more and more, more and more a leader in the church and a leader in the community. And then we examined a guy called George Tan, who is, who is literally a gypsy. That is his ethnic, social, cultural background. He says, call me a gypsy. It cuts out a lot of the red tape of using the more politically correct terms. But he's a guy who grew up knowing nothing of Jesus Christ, but he has come through reading the Bible to become, to become someone who wants to proclaim the good news to those around him. And he has experienced rejection and he has experienced violence from his own people because he is, he is stepping outside and into something different. Around us, the gospel continues to spread. Around us, God continues to call and to equip his people. And, and most of us are probably not called to those kinds of ministries. But, but what would it look like for each one of us What would it look like for each one of us to take one more step to be just a little bit more spiritually awake this week, this year? That is a challenging calling and one that honestly, honestly, it's impossible. Your revelation here tells the church in Sardis that they're dead and then tells them to wake up. And how does a dead person wake up. How does a dead person wake up? The only way a dead person wakes up is through the power of Christ. And so the last part of this, the last part of this message, the last part of this letter, verses four to six, talks about what it means to be alive. And the point is not necessarily, oh, do this on your own, church, drum up your energy. It's, it's look at how Christ has been at work. And look at how Christ finishes his work. If we ask ourselves hard questions, the answer has to be that we can't do it, but that Christ can and Christ does. And so at the end of this letter, Jesus tells us what it looks like for him to work in and through us. And he talks about how there's a few people, just a few people at the church in Sardis who who hold on who overcome in the power of Jesus Christ. And he talks about how they'll wear white robes and they'll walk with Jesus. And for us, that sounds maybe like a picture of heaven, right? Yay, white robes, clouds, it'll be great. Culturally speaking, what that actually is, is a victory procession. Jesus is shifting the images a little bit and he's saying, you know, when you feel like you aren't gonna conquer, When you feel like you are looking at this invulnerable, unconquerable, incredible power in the world and like there is nothing you can do, well, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me and we are going to win this thing. And so the fortresses of the world, which often look beyond our power and in fact are beyond our power, well, because Jesus climbed a hill. Because Jesus went up to the cross and died and rose again for us, there is no fortress that can stand against us, his people, because we are in his power. And so those who hold on to Jesus will overcome. They will be in the victory parade. 
And then Jesus tells us those who, those who overcome will have their name written in the book of life and, and their name will be proclaimed before the Lord forever. If we belong to Jesus, then he will hold on to us forever. Jesus truly is our eternal refuge and our fortress. If we are in Jesus, if we live in him, then he guarantees us victory. Now, there are a lot of battles, and if we think about the history of the church, there are times where, from at least an earthly perspective, the church seems to suffer real losses. Times where complacency, internal corruption, outside attack breaks down the church in some particular place. But any time that the forces of evil break down a church somewhere, the church springs up somewhere else, often even more powerful than before. So if we look around our culture and we think, wow, this is a hard go, and I, I don't know if our best days are behind us. Well, maybe they are. But in Jesus, the best days of the church are always in front of us. He assures us that we will defeat evil. And then he assures us that he is preparing a city, a city on a hill, a fortress where truly no evil will be able to get to, a place where the Lord himself will cast all evil powers out and squash them down so thoroughly that they will never be able to attack God's city again. God truly is our refuge and our fortress. He is our shelter in times of trouble, and he guarantees, he guarantees that if we stay faithful to him, he will provide an eternal rest for us. So we stand with this strange, this strange double message that we often encounter in the Bible. On the one hand, we're told to wake up to not be complacent, to not let the city fall, to, to keep on following Jesus, to man the defenses, and even to go on the offense against evil powers. And all of that is true, and we need to hear all of that and be challenged by all of that. But then at the same time, we're, we hear that Jesus takes care of us. We hear that he brings the dead back to life. We hear that he makes sure that, that our names will stay in the book of life. And so there is a sense when we hear texts like this, just like the original listeners, we should, be, we should be shaken up and a bit afraid. We should ask hard questions of ourselves. And there is also a sense when we hear texts like this, we should hear Jesus assuring us, not lulling us back to sleep, but telling us that, that the battle will ultimately go the way of the Lord. So what about us, church? Are we asleep? Are we asleep? And if we are, then what would it look like for us to wake up, to fulfill our task, to follow our Lord? And we can be assured. We can be completely assured by the promise of God that, that Jesus Christ, who died and rose again by his resurrection, guarantees us life. No matter what happens to us in this world, we will live because Jesus has hold of us. If we are asleep, let us wake up. And as we follow Jesus, let us rejoice that he gives us eternal life. Let's pray.
Father, so often over the centuries, your church and your people have traded in reputation instead of reality. We have focused on appearances, and too often we have fallen asleep. Lord, we pray that you wake us up. Lord, if we have been too comfortable, if we have been too complacent, then shake us up. Help us to follow you again with with all that you provide us with. And Lord, at the same time, we ask that you help us not to be be working to earn our place with you or, or to be frightened that maybe you don't love us, but to be so assured of your love and care for us, to be so assured of your victory that we live in complete confidence because you, because you are our Lord and God, because you are our refuge and fortress now and forever. Amen.